Um, over the last couple of years, uh, I don't know if you guys have done this too, but really during COVID, um, Amy and I really got more into uh, some of the long form shows that stream on TV, like especially Netflix. Uh, and so we watched a few shows. I'm not going to tell you which ones, but <laughs> we watched a number of like six season long shows, you know, and uh, every time you come to the end of an episode, uh, one of the things that these shows always do is they end the episodes on, you know, what we all call them, right? A cliffhanger. Now, the real cheesy version is like the daytime soap opera cliffhangers. Uh, but the better ones are some of these uh, better TV shows, and they end with some kind of cliffhanger. And what's funny is, like, you know it's going to happen. They know that you know that you expect it to happen, and they still do it, and it still works. <laughs> and it still gets us. That uh, If you've ever watched a show like that on, on Netflix in particular, uh, that, like, five seconds at the end of the episode when the, the, the credits start rolling and there's that little countdown in the bottom right corner... Uh, the screen, it's like the most excruciating decision-making moment of your life in that moment, right? You're like, because you got, and for me, I like look over at Amy, my wife, and I'm like, you know, in my head, I'm like, are we watching another one, or are we going to be responsible adults and go to bed? Like, oh, it already started, I guess we're in, let's watch another one. That's, like how, that's how they get you, right? And so, uh, and then the worst is like, the show ends, and you're like, what am I supposed to do now in the evening? Talk to my spouse? Like, what is this, right? And so you go looking for the next one, and it's a whole thing. And so I want to find, why, why is that? Why do we do that? Because we love stories. We are built for story. Uh, and I was having this conversation. I honestly can't remember who I was having it with. Might have been one of you. Might have been somebody else. But we were talking about the hero's journey, which is basically this idea in literature that all stories are the same story. All good stories are the same story. Uh, and if you ever want, I can walk you through um, Finding Nemo and Lord of the Rings. Same story. Very different looking, but same story, okay? So we get caught up in stories, especially we want to know how is this story going to resolve? How is it going to end, right? And so today we come to the final chapter of Acts, and I just want to warn you, you might not, you won't be satisfied with the ending of the, of the last chapter of Acts. But what I'm hoping we realize by the end of our time together today is that Luke might have penned the final words of Acts here in chapter 28. But the reason there isn't some grand conclusion to the book of Acts is that the story of Acts is continuing on. That there are many Christian organizations that title themselves Acts 29 because we're the final chapter or the next chapter in Acts. And so the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, and the birth of Jesus' church does not end in Acts 28, right? Praise God, we get to carry on the mission that was started in the book of Acts. So why doesn't Acts have this like big moment of closure? Because the acts of the followers of Jesus, some of your translations say the acts of the apostles for the title of the book. Uh, and in, in a sense, lowercase a, we are apostles as well. We are sent ones. And because the acts of us as Jesus followers are not finished um, until Jesus comes and sets his kingdom up, the story of Acts continues on. And I think on this, oh, it looks different on the back, but um, I, I thought there was a date on the screen that you can see, but you can't. Uh, so that's why the, the book of Acts ends the way it does. And so with that said, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 28 one more time. We're going to work our way little by little through the whole book. So I'm going to go verse 
commentary, verse, commentary, verse, commentary, all the way through uh, today. Acts chapter 28, verse 1. Now, you may remember what just happened in Acts 27. There was a shipwreck, a storm, so keep that context in your mind. After we were brought safely through the storm, right, we then learned that the island was called Malta. So they figure out where they are. Now, I have to imagine that the survivors here uh, of this uh, th- this story, they, you know, they would have done what we would have done and breathe a huge sigh of relief when your toes touch the sand after an experience like that. I think I've said this before. We got caught in a pretty minor squall in my brother-in-law's fishing boat one time, and that was the first time when I was like, oh, I'm completely powerless. <laughs> and it's scary. And so I got to imagine that they are relieved. Now, Malta was on the route to Rome. Remember, Paul is trying to go to Rome. And so this is obviously God's providence at work. Not only does he bring them through the storm, but it gets them back on course. Verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Uh, That's about to start for us, right? It's going to get rainy and the rain is going to be cold here pretty soon. So they arrive on the island of Malta. They receive some warm hospitality, they kindle a fire, they welcome these shipwreck survivors, and here we go, verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them to the fire. Now, this is just a little leadership side note. Paul is a servant leader, and he begins gathering sticks for a fire. It's just a good little reminder that there's no job beneath the apostle Paul. Maybe the greatest missionary the church has ever known started a bunch of churches. There is no superiority complex with Paul. Uh, one commentator noted that it's only the little man that refuses the little task. So there's nothing beneath Paul as a leader. Now, don't put that against Acts chapter 6, where the apostles say it's not right for us to serve tables. They're not saying that they're not willing to. They're just saying that they need to prioritize something else. But it's important to remember a good leader, a Christian leader, should be willing to do anything that anybody else would do. So verse 3 again, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, that's the most eloquent way to say he got bit by a snake, right? It got fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Now, what do we have here? We have a little example of karma. Right? This is karma kind of thinking going on here. This is their worldview. Well, if you did something bad, then the world's going to come back and get you. They assume he must have been guilty of some kind of big crime to basically receive a death sentence. Uh, so justice here uh, in their world would have been personified as a goddess, the daughter of Zeus. And so verse 5, though, says something else. He, however, Paul, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, another side note, if you've ever wondered why do those weird churches handle snakes, this is why. That's where they get that idea from. We don't do that. Don't ever expect that to happen on this platform. But in case you wonder, that's where that idea comes from. Verse 6. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, oh, he must not be a murderer, he must be a god. So Paul is, we know, he's not a god, he's just a man, he's a regular person like you and I. But it's fascinating how God shows 
chooses to kind of show up in power here to this group of kind of superstitious people, right? This is their worldview. It's kind of filled with superstition, and God shows up. A little bit reminds me of the way that God shows up with Moses and the snakes and kind of says, yeah, but I'm superior. Verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So it's interesting. Paul just has a really good knack for like connecting with key leaders. And that happens again here. Verse 8. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. So he continues, Paul does, to be a blessing to people. That's what he does. He just goes around and he's a blessing to people. Uh, this, this guy's father most likely had some form of what was called Malta fever, which was an infection that was caused by goat's milk. Uh, and so this fever could last a few months, even a few years, and some, sometimes it could be fatal. But apparently, without hesitation, Paul visits him, prays over him, lays hands on him, and heals him. And then guess what happens? The word gets out, because that's what happens when something like that goes on. Verse 9, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Now, again, this is one of those instances where it's like that's just a verse in the Bible, just in the middle of a paragraph. Everyone who was sick on this island came and was healed. That's incredible. That's amazing. This is reminiscent, though, of what happened in Luke chapter 4 after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and the whole region shows up with their sick to be healed. That's what's incredible here. So verse 10, they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And so these people here display gratitude, not just with words, but also by providing provisions for the crew for the rest of the It's, it's amazing how God will provide for people who are kind of on mission with him, right? Through this crazy moment. And so we come to the point now on the journey here to Rome. This is the point for my family when we're like driving from here to Florida. This is about when we hit uh, maybe about Georgia. And the and from the back seat, I start to hear, are we there yet, Dad? Right? And I have to be like, not quite. Drink another juice box, just popcorn. Just chill out, I'm driving, right? It's like we're almost there. This is the point at the story uh, where if we were traveling with Paul, we might ask him, hey, are we there yet? Like, let's get going. And by verse 11, Paul would have probably replied, just about, almost. So verse 11. After three months, we set sail in a ship that, in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Puteoli. There, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Now, brothers there refers to other Christians. They were like, oh, we ran into other Christians. And then he says, we came to Rome. Now, if you're paying attention to geography, you might be thinking, hold on. They're not actually in Rome. What's going on there? Luke is saying that for all practical purposes, our goal of reaching Rome is in sight. Now, how many of you have like a road trip that your family has done more than once, even if it's a day trip, right? There's always a point in that familiar long trip where there's some kind of 
a marker, right? Some kind of landmark that you get to and you're like, ah, we made it. That's essentially what's happening here. For my family, when we go visit Florida, it's when we cross the border and there's that sign that says, welcome to sunny Florida. We always take a phone out, take a picture of it because that's what you do. And we're like, ah, oh, we made it. Even though we're not actually there yet to where we want to get to, we made it, right? It's kind of that idea. Rome is in sight. Verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So once again, we see here just how important and sweet Christian fellowship, Christian friendship can be. The sight of other spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ in what was a once far away place, we see it fills Paul's heart with courage, with delight. He's encouraged to see them. Wow, putting a face to these people that I've known about. Verse 16, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, just about two and a half years have passed by since Paul was given that kind of divine reassurance in Jerusalem that he would reach Rome. So it's been two and a half years since he heard from God, you're going to get to Rome, and here he's finally made it. And even though he's a prisoner, he's got a little, just enough freedom to minister to people, to preach the gospel, to talk with people. Look at verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So he can't get to the synagogues himself, but he invites Roman Jews to come to him. And again, he's saying the same thing he said a number of times in this book. He's innocent of these charges. Verse 18, when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And so again, Paul declares his innocence, and then he mentions the hope of Israel. Now remember, again, Paul knows his audience. He knows the people he is attempting to evangelize. And so he's, by using Old Testament terminology familiar to them, he is setting up the Jewish leaders of Rome to hear the gospel of Jesus. 21, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Now, it is highly unlikely that that's true. It is probably true that they have heard all the things that they were going to hear about Paul, and that they realize they actually don't have a case against Paul, and so they are backing off. That they're kind of weaseling out of what they were trying to do to Paul. And look at 22. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So he's apparently piqued their interest. They're interested in what he has to say. They want to hear more. So Paul makes the most of his situation by welcoming them and proclaiming Jesus. I wonder if you've been in a situation where somebody says to you, you know, tell me about this, this faith that you have. And were you ready in that moment? 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, 
From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So he must have had some pretty incredible stamina for teaching and speaking and preaching. Now, it's likely this is, you know, maybe sitting in a big circle in the house there, the place he's staying. In Troas, he preaches all night. And here in this text, he preaches all day long. This isn't just a three-minute gospel presentation after a 25-minute sermon, right? This is a all-day back-and-forth dialogue. He took his time to explain the plan of God using the scriptures. So this is a great reminder for us that when we're talking to someone who has yet to say that they want to follow Jesus and we're explaining the gospel of Jesus to them, especially if they lack any kind of Christian worldview. We've talked about this in the past in a past series, many of us think that there's like a scale of zero is like unbelief, don't know anything about Jesus, and 10 is a person who follows Jesus, right? And many of us approach evangelism like everybody's at an eight. And we just kind of have to wake up some latent belief that they have. But that's not the case many times. Many people are at a one or a two or a three. And if we want to be faithful to, to do what Paul is doing here, it's going to take some time. It, it, it might take even longer than an all-day session, right? He goes about it by taking time, being patient. He taught about Jesus, kind of contextualized to them using the Old Testament, showing these people that Jesus really is the true hero of the story. And so we continue the church's mission by doing the same. We expound the scriptures and we point people to the hero of the scriptures, which is Jesus, which is why... Um, we talk about knowing your scriptures. There's a reason for that. First of all, you're going to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, which is God's intent for you. And secondly, you're able to speak this way. We're patient. We're faithful. We teach the Word of Christ, and, and we, and we in, help people encounter the Christ of the Word, right? So the way we've talked about this in the past here is by saying that we learn to be gospel-fluent. That's a, that's a good way to think about it. In the same way that a new language becomes fluent for us, the gospel of Jesus becomes something that we're able to just be fluent in. Now, I know that there's a number of you in here who speak multiple languages, and I kind of can, right? I can speak some Spanish. That's where my uh, mom's side of the family is from. And I'll tell you this. If I'm around a bunch of people who speak Spanish, my fluency and my pronunciation and all that starts to go up just by being exposed to it. If I'm away from it for a long time, my Spanish gets pretty terrible again. And so the same is true with the scriptures for us and thinking about being fluent in the gospel. The more we think about God's word and take in God's word, the more fluently it kind of just flows out of us. It becomes natural and easy for us to share in an unforced way, like a language becomes fluent for us. We're able to just share things with people and connect dots because we're fluent in the gospel. So for us as a church family, that's the goal, right? We never grow tired of opening up the scriptures, of explaining texts to people, showing people how Jesus fits within the larger redemptive story of God. And so then here in this text, what happens as a result of these hours and hours that Paul puts into sharing the gospel? Verse 24. This should be your expectation too. Some were convinced by what he said, 
but others disbelieve. Now, it's not the first time we've heard this response in the Apostle Paul's ministry, right? This is almost always the way it goes. Some respond and some disbelieve. Paul preaches, some, are, some respond and are convinced, but most don't. Uh, there's an old saying that's helpful here as we think about this reality of sharing the gospel with people. The same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. There's a few different versions of that, but people are either melted by and moved by Jesus when they hear his word, or they might reject him. And some people even become increasingly hard-hearted towards the gospel. That doesn't mean we stop sharing it or living it or both. The reality is, though, that no one can listen to the gospel and really hear it and just remain neutral. You have to do something when someone tells you that the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ is a real thing that we believe in. We just said it in our creed. That demands some kind of response. Verse 25, in disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Quote, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Okay, so now here he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6, just as Jesus did in Matthew 14 to explain the failure of the Jews to accept him as Messiah. Verse 26. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. They had eyes to see, and ears to hear, but the heart fails to understand. When Jesus talks in parables, many times he says what? Let those who have ears to hear, hear. So what a tragedy it would be for us to come to the end of our time in the book of Acts where the gospel has been proclaimed oh, so many times and for you to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, but your hearts fail to respond to it. No one can listen to the gospel and remain neutral. So I want to make sure that we all have that chance to respond, if that's you, to respond to the news that Jesus has come in the flesh and he has lived a life that we could never live. He died a death on our behalf, was raised in a bodily resurrection to new life and ascended to heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, where one day he will come and return and set up his kingdom and judge the living and the dead. And all you must do is submit to that reality in your life to make Jesus, to give him all of your allegiance, to make him both Savior and Lord of your life. The scriptures say today is the day of salvation. So if, you, if you're sitting here hearing that come out of my mouth and there's something in you that's like, I want, I want to respond to that. I want to believe that. Don't walk out of here and let that go. We want you to, to know the Jesus that we know. Verse 28. He says, let it, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. That's you and I. And he says, and they will listen. So he continues his patterns of turning from the Jews to witness to the Gentiles here in Rome. But you better believe that he does not give up on the Jews. No. And this brings us to verses 30 and 31, which is the, the end of the book of Acts. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all 
who came to him proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, that idea of proclaiming the kingdom of God is what Jesus did too. That was the main thing Jesus did. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and that's what Paul is doing here, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, and look at this, and without hindrance. Oh, that would be, if that could be said about us, that would be amazing, right? And so Acts essentially ends... Right? The screen goes black and it says to be continued, dot, dot, dot. And so you might be, like you read this and maybe your response is like, wait a minute. Like where's the, am I missing a chapter? What's going on here? I got to know what happens to Paul. We've been leading up to Paul's trial before Caesar for all these weeks now, but nothing is said about it here. So what happens? We, we don't know how long he lived. We don't, we, we don't know how long he continued ministering unhindered like this. Did he ever make it to Spain like he wanted to? Well, if you need a little closure, here's what we do know. During this two-year span, Paul wrote four more important letters that we actually call the prison epistles. The word epistle just basically means letter. And so those are now books in your Bible. The book of Ephesians, which we did a 12-sermon series on back in 2018. Uh, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians, and the book of Philemon. Paul wrote those during this two-year span here. From everything we read in these last chapters of Acts and from what we can piece together from his letters and from what we learn from church history, uh, it seems likely that Paul was released around A.D. 62 or 63. And when he was given his freedom, he just kept doing what Paul does and he resumed his traveling ministry. During this time of kind of obscurity, he goes to different places. He visits all these churches that he helped start. And he writes his first letter to Timothy. And he writes Titus before he gets re-arrested. And then after his second arrest, just prior to his martyrdom, he writes the second letter to Timothy. Um, Richard Longnecker, one commentator, offers a sum summary of Paul's final years. He says this. We may believe that after Paul's release from his first Roman imprisonment, he continued his evangelistic work in the eastern portion of the empire. So that's likely what happened. Perhaps even fulfilling his long-cherished desire to visit Spain. And since 2 Timothy 4, 16-18 speaks of an approaching second trial and has a tone of resignation, we may conclude that Paul was rearrested at about A.D. 67 and according to tradition was beheaded at Rome by the order of the Emperor Nero. So why doesn't Luke cover any of that in the book of Acts? Why would he, as a storyteller, not tell us what happens to the hero of our story? Well, it's because Paul is not the hero of the book of Acts. This is not intended to be a biography of Paul. Luke set out as an author to describe the unstoppable power of the gospel of Jesus. So in his first book, in Luke, he tells us in Acts that he set out to, to tell all that Jesus began to do. So when Luke sits down to write Acts, he says, hey, that first book I wrote, the book of Luke, I did that to, to, begin, to, to, to tell all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. We see that at the beginning of Acts. And so the book of Acts then is all that Jesus continued to do by the Holy Spirit after that point. So Luke leaves us with Paul preaching the, the gospel in Rome, and in choosing to walk away from the story here, what Luke does is kind of masterful. He keeps King Jesus, not Paul, not anybody else in the history of the church. He keeps Jesus, the hero of the book of Acts. And so he concludes Acts kind of on a note of victory. 
with the triumph of Jesus in his gospel, and this is a good conclusion for this story. Luke's message ends up being something like this. The book may be finished, but the mission that Jesus assigned to the church is not finished. This means that Christians, whether in first century Rome or in 21st century America, we get to enter into the story. We get to enter into the great theodrama, if you will, of history and play our part. So as Lansdowne Alliance Church, we get to participate in this chapter of Acts. We get to join in seeing the good news of Jesus go to our communities and to the nations. While God replaces the messengers over time, right? We all have our part to play in our life to live, and then the messenger will be replaced. But the message and the mission assigned to us as Christians will remain unchanged until Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom. And so we want to continue the story of the book of Acts as we make disciples who worship Jesus in all of life, who live in real community with other disciples, and who are on mission in the world. That's why those words are on those banners behind me. So until Alliance Church, our coming King Jesus returns, we follow Paul's model of following Jesus by pouring ourselves out in his presence for the kingdom that is coming. So when you see Jesus, in whatever that is, with your own eyes, you, you won't regret one second of having faithfully served and playing your role. As blood-bought Christians, we will be in his presence. And this apostle said that all the things we dealt with here will be nothing to compare to what we see then. We'll, we'll be there with saints, with fellow brothers and sisters from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, including those like Paul who actually lost their life for the sake of the gospel. And there will be a multitude of people who are redeemed, singing praises to Jesus, who is the one who is worthy of all adoration. You know, when we sing together, that's the sound of the kingdom of heaven that's coming. Right? It's not just us singing. It's also us hearing what redemption sounds like in our own tongue. And so the mission of Acts is to be continued until Jesus who is our life, appears, and he comes and he concludes his own mission. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for giving us this account to see this sort of handbook for what it looks like to follow you as a group of people that we call the church. We thank you that you have seen it in your providence fit to not to build these little outposts all over the place and have all kinds of different people and languages and everything represented as part of your family. None of our little containers on this earth, whether they be cultural or language or anything, are big enough to hold you. And so you have given yourself to all of us as your church. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for this account. And Father, we thank you that we are part of this particular local body who find ourselves in this place in time with these people whom we love so much. And so we ask for your blessing as we go out from here. We thank you again for the picture of the kingdom that we get to see each week as we come and we gather. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.